Today we're going to continue with our Marks of Jesus series. Uh, we're going to be looking at Opens Our Eyes, which uh, if uh, it can go up as the title, that'd be great. Marks of Jesus Opens Our Eyes, Mark 8, verses 1 to 21. Now, this morning, what I want to do is actually look at three sorts of spiritual blindness. Um, These are things that I believe Jesus challenges in the story we're about to read, and I think they are relevant to every one of us in the room. I believe they are a personal challenge if you're a mature Christian, and I found it challenging myself as I prepared. I think if you're a young Christian, or if you're a not yet Christian person, if you're just looking in and thinking, I don't think you need to sort of sit there and think, oh, this is just for the religious And on the other hand, as mature Christians, we needn't think, oh, this is not for me. I think there is a challenge for every single one of us. And I'll explain why as we go along. We're going to be looking then at three dangers or problems of spiritual blindness. Let's let's read the story. We're going to start verse 1 and get started. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them hungry, they'll collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. I will say in passing, this is definitely a separate incident to the feeding of the 5,000. You'll see that's referred to even later here. But there is a significant difference geographically. This is probably more of a Gentile audience or at the very least a mixed audience. The feeding of the 5,000 was much more uh, Jewish, Israelite, uh, core uh, audience. So this is a more Gentile audience, which, which might just be interesting to remember as we talk later. If I send them home hungry, they'll collapse on the way. They've come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground And when he'd taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied, and afterwards the disciples picked up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha, which was probably, almost certainly, back in Galilee. So they go back to home territory where Jesus has already been ministering by this time for nearly two years. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. And he said to them, 
Do you still not understand? Right, we're going to get into this, and I don't know how God's going to lead me totally. I know where I want to go, but I'm, I'm praying that God will help me to emphasize the right bits in the right way so that we are changed by being here this morning. Not hugely, some of us, maybe I hope some of us, hugely, you might become a Christian this morning, but that we go on a little bit clearer and a bit better in our faith as a result of being here and listening to me this morning and being part of what we're doing this morning. We're going to be looking at religious legalism, which is the Pharisees. We're going to look at worldly cynicism with Herod and self-obsession with the disciples. And all of these are a danger for all of us. And they keep us, or they keep them, and they can keep us blind to who Jesus is and what he can do and what he brings to our lives. That Jesus is our saviour. He is our deliverer, our redeemer. He's our provider. He's our friend. He alone is the one who can bring us into close personal relationship with the living God, to know God as our Father, our Abba Father. He can set us free from sin, from guilt, from bondage. He can set us free from the fear of death. He can revolutionize our lives in so many ways, but we can be blinded to that or to a measure of a blindness that makes us unable to enjoy all he is and all he brings. And lest we think this doesn't apply to us, let me remind you of verse 15, which we've just read. Jesus warns his own disciples, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. So he sees those two dangers, the Pharisees and Herod, we'll obviously unpack that in a moment, these are a danger for his disciples. And then, of course, the third thing I've mentioned is actually looking at the disciples themselves because they are quite blind, spiritually blind themselves in this incident and when Jesus is trying to get through to them. We'll see that in a moment. So let's look first of all at religious legalism and the Pharisees. So that's my first point to put up. We're looking at the Pharisees. Now we have heard a bit about this as we've gone through Mark, so I need to be careful I don't over... Uh, get into detail. But I do want to remind you that the Pharisees were strongly religious. They would have been quite careful to keep God's law. So their, their form of legalism, their formalism, which is another way of describing it, which is where they, uh, the forms they had, the rules they had, the laws they had, were not necessarily bad ones. They were God's law and God's rules and God's form from the Old Testament. So what was wrong? Well, these people, the Pharisees, and let's, let's just hear this carefully, they were totally focused on those external factors, the laws, the rules, and the forms. And actually, they were focused on their ability to keep those rules, to obey them. And they felt they were doing a pretty good job with those rules, and therefore they were right with God, that they thought we're the ones that have got it. We're right with God because we keep those rules pretty well and pretty accurately. And therefore we've satisfied God. They were very unaware of sin in their own hearts. They were unaware of their own weaknesses, their own vulnerabilities, their own sin. 
And in fact, they were so sure that they were getting it right that they liked to add to the rules bits that they knew they could keep, which they make them look even holier. So it's not just doing this on the Sabbath, it's doing this and this and this on the Sabbath, or not doing this and this and this on the Sabbath. And we've got it really right now. We've fine-tuned this to make God even happier with us and to be even more acceptable to God. And from that position, they looked down on anyone who didn't keep their standards. Now, we could go all over the Gospels to illustrate this, but one illustration's enough because it sums up the whole thing. Let's put it up. Luke 18, 9 to 14. Here it is, a Pharisee, and it shows you what they're like. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, the tax collector in other words, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humble, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This one story is enough to show pharisaical blindness. It's a horrible thing, where he is so convinced that he's got it right, that he fasts twice a week, gives a tenth of all he's got, that he, he's right with God in that on the basis of his performance and actually other people are way short. And this tax collector is a good example of people who are way short. But actually the whole thing's the other way around. The tax collector who's saying, God, I'm a sinner, have mercy on me. He's the one who goes home justified. The other one is prayers aren't even hitting the ceiling. Now this pharisaical problem, religious legalism or formalism, made them blind to who Jesus was. And that's what's going on in verses 11 to 13. We haven't time to over-explore it, but let's just remind you that Jesus went back to Dalmanutha, which I I said, and I think I'm accurate from my commentaries, I've checked it out, this was back in Jesus' home territory. So when they ask for a sign... That is in a context, in an area where in the last two years, Jesus has healed thousands of people. He's healed lepers. He's raised the dead girls. The Jairus' daughter's incident happened here. He's fed 5,000. He's done all sorts of things within easy traveling distance of where these guys are saying, we want to see a sign to test him. A sign from heaven, they call it. Now, this demand for a sign is laughable if it wasn't so sad. It's a sign of hard hearts and blind minds, unbelief. The the Pharisees actually knew of and had seen plenty of miracles, but they didn't recognize any of them as what they considered a sign from heaven. They had their own preconceived ideas of what the Messiah would do what the Son of God would do, what a sign from heaven would be. And they explained away all that Jesus had done. And you can readily read it in the Gospels. Sometimes they got very uppity about the the circumstances. So when Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath, they could watch someone be miraculously healed and dismiss it because he can't be any good, he did it on the Sabbath. 
And another time when it really, really, you know, was really in their face, their explanation was, yeah, that's pretty impressive, but that's done by demonic power. So yes, there's an impressive miracle, but it's a demonic miracle. And it goes on. And they call Jesus even a deceiver with all the wonderful teaching and the wonderful things he does. They are just not open to the fact that if he doesn't fit what their preconceived ideas are of the Messiah and the Son of God, he is not the real deal. And so this sign from heaven, they want yet more, and they're not going to get it. It says, Jesus sighed deeply, verse 12. Now that means a deep groan. Oh, Jesus, right in his spirit, felt the pain and the despair, almost, at these guys, the pain and the anger, I was going to say. He sighed deep. It's a deep emotional reaction. He's not uh, superficially brushing them aside. He's deeply grieved. These are the people who know the Bible. They should be the most clear-sighted of anybody, and they're totally blind. And another sign won't make any difference, and he's not going to give it to them. Now, let's be careful, because I would say to you, this sort of spiritual blindness pharisaical blindness is very, very common. And let me start by saying it is not merely common in church or in religious circles. I think a pharisaical attitude that blinds you to Jesus is very common even in atheist circles. I find it quite commonly even in one-to-one conversations, though people are often quite courteous. But if you look at someone like Richard Dawkins with his writing and polemics, it's pharisaical. Honestly, it is. It really is. Where there is an absolute convinced, I'm right, my way of seeing the world is not is the only right one. And then there's a sort of probing question. If there's a God, why doesn't he? And you lay down the terms like, like the Pharisees. You know, we want a sign from heaven that we're happy with. If there's a God, why doesn't he do what I think he should do? Why doesn't he do what I believe, and I'm very convinced, would be the right thing for him to do? And so on and so forth. So you're saying you're the final arbiter of truth. You're saying God's got to perform according to your rules. And actually with that often goes a dogmatism and a judgmentalism of other people. And funny enough, in the category I'm talking about, it's often Christians as a judgmentalism and a dogmatism in modern atheism which wipes aside faith and Jesus. But of course, pharisaical blindness is also a problem for those who follow religion. All religions are prone to it. Many of them are almost built on it. But actually, Christianity, which shouldn't be like that, can also be sadly infected with it. It can be a common problem. That's why Jesus talked about it as a yeast. He said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Now, you'll all know what yeast is. Yeast is something that that you put in bread and it infects the whole lump of dough. You just need a small bit and it spreads through the whole lump. It's a breeding, living, multiplying thing. And in the end, it changes the character of the whole lump. The whole lump's character is changed. Now, a pinch of legalism and pharisaical pride can spread and infect the whole lump. Whether that is the whole person, the whole church, the whole denomination, the whole movement, the whole group, it's a pretty deadly thing. And once it gets hold, it can spread. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, 
had seen it happen in a brilliant church in Galatia, which had started off so well, full of the Spirit, going for God, believing the gospel, and had been infected with legalism. And he writes this to them in Galatians 5, verses 7 to 9. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. And he's saying, you know, you've had people adding rules, adding laws, telling you you're not really saved unless you do this, that, and the other, other than your walk with Jesus, your relationship with him. Come back to the Spirit, to freedom. That's his appeal in Galatians. And it's a powerful one. So yeast and legalism as a model, or a picture of of legalism, is is a really uh, consistent picture in the Bible. Yeast is often seen as a negative thing, by the way. Not every time in the Bible, but it's often a picture of something evil or corrupting, and it certainly is here. The trouble is, this sort of uh, pharisaical attitude, legalism, leads to a scepticism about everything that doesn't fit our preconceived ideas. And there's always a danger of that, that we become sceptical of that which doesn't fit our box or boxes. (laughs) That's how it starts, and that's how it started with the Pharisees. But it often goes beyond that to being aggressively negative about that which doesn't fit our boxes and condemning. And there's a real danger of a hardness of heart which is quite harsh towards those who don't fit with the way we see things. And I just want to say we always need to watch it, like Jesus said. Beware, be careful, keep out, watch out, Jesus said, for this yeast. I think it can happen to new movements of God and old movements of God. It can happen to young people and it can happen to old people. It can happen to new school and old school. Honestly, it can. It's a spirit where you get the idea that you are right and your way of doing it is the only way to do it. And actually, Jesus is only really happy with your particular way of doing things. We've just got to ease back. We've got to walk in relationship with him and be careful we don't let that sort of thing grow in our heart or our church or whatever we're part of. Because this causes Jesus distress. He sighed deeply. I do not want to make Jesus groan, do you? Do you want to make Jesus groan? See, all the way through what we're looking at this morning, we've got to remember Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, quite often, that's a very comforting thought. But this morning, it's going to be slightly uncomfortable because this is the same Jesus, and he really doesn't like this stuff. I don't want to make him groan. I want him to be happy with me. But there is good news because yeast is uh, only a picture, and it does... The Bible does give us grounds for believing you can get rid of this. It doesn't have to be irreversible. Let's look at Paul, 1 Corinthians 5. You can pop that up, please. Verses 6 to 7. Writing to them, he says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Now, we can't unpack that. You could preach a sermon on that verse. But what he's actually saying is, you can get rid of it. Get rid of it before it does more damage. You don't have to be a yeast-ridden old lump of dough. You can be new, unleavened batch, which is what you really are. Jesus has died for you. Restore yourself to that freshness. 
we can always do some work. We will do as we finish this morning. We'll have a reflective time on all three of the things I'm going to talk about. And we may need to say, Lord, I've got very judgmental. I've got very uh, harsh on those who don't fit my model or what I think is the great way of doing things. Lord, I'm sorry. I just want to get rid of the yeast. We can do it. Let's move on to the second one, worldly cynicism, which is, I think, what, what Jesus means with Herod. It's the second type of spiritual blindness. You see, Herod and his followers, the Herodians, were cynics and compromisers. A little tiny bit of background. Herod is king at this time. He claimed to be the authentic king of Israel. He claimed to be the, if you like, descendant of David. He claimed to be defending Israel. He claimed to be quite serious about his religion and concerned for his people, God's people, Israel. In fact, that was a load of baloney. He was a wheeler dealer. He was in cahoots with the Romans. He was more a puppet king of the Romans than anything. He was personally very immoral uh, in terms of his sexual morality. And he was quite a vicious, cruel character. And people who crossed him found out a nasty side of him. And he had them killed uh, and were sometimes tortured. He was, by the standards of the day, a thoroughly worldly political manipulator. He was exactly the same as any pagan king would have been, though he claimed to be the king of the Jews and a good guy. He's actually very conflicted and compromised. We're not going to read it, but you see it in the story of John the Baptist, which some of you will know, I'm sure that he was sort of fascinated by John the Baptist, and it's, we're told he even liked to hear John the Baptist speak. He found it quite uh, stirring, I guess, and interesting. But he himself was a, an immoral, proud, conceited man, and he got himself in a complete mess with the whole John the Baptist thing, where his boasting and his immorality led him to be in what he saw as a a real dilemma. He'd either got to have John executed to please his uh, wife and her her, her daughter. He'd got dancing Salome, you probably know the story, and his pride in front of his head, or he'd got to back down. He wasn't going to do that. So he had John executed, just like that. I know it cost him a little bit of emotion, but he had had John. So that's the sort of guy we're dealing with. If you want to know a bit more, and we are going to, let's just look at Luke 23. This is the time when Herod meets Jesus. Gives you some idea of the sort of person we're dealing with. If you could pop up Luke 23, please, uh, verses 8 to 11, I think. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. This is near the end when Jesus is having been tried. Because for a long time he'd been wanting to see Jesus. From what he'd heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him, that's Jesus, with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing Jesus. So you've got this, he would, I'd quite like to see one of your miracles. Meanwhile, he's got the religious figures who he's trying to keep sweet, really in his ear about Jesus. So then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. So it gives you some idea of Herodian. Now, I'm not suggesting anybody in this room is as nasty as Herod, but what he stands for is compromise. He stands for a bit of religious fascination, but underneath a worldly-wise, this is where I'm going to do things basically the way the world does. It's a compromise situation. And Jesus said it's a yeast that can infect even his own people. 
And actually, I think, in our culture, and even in Christian circles, there is a danger of this yeast. I even wonder if it's more this one nowadays than the Pharisee one, although I'm not, I wouldn't say that particularly, because I think you get all sorts of brands of Phariseeism. But, but let me explain. I think in our day and age, it's very easy to be fascinated by spirituality, miracles, strange things, whilst all the time being very light indeed on personal holiness, sexual morality, what you feel about all sorts of things. You just take your values from the world. You're interested in the fizz and the pop, but you're not interested in something that affects you and how you live and puts you at variance or in conflict even with the world around you. You want to flow with the world around you, but you like a little bit of special religious uh, tickle on the side, tickling your fancy on the side, whatever that means. Better be careful. Commitment to the Jesus as Lord is not popular with that sort of person because that makes an impact on your life. Now, I think there is a real danger of that in Christian circles, and there's a danger of that on the edge of Christian circles, that people come to look at the gospel and they're sort of interested in the spirituality and this and that, but they want it on their own terms. They want to be able to keep it with other things. I want to keep it with all my meditation, my yoga. I want to still be quite relaxed about my personal relationships and my personal morality, but I don't mind a little bit of special stuff in there, a bit of, bit of fizz and pop. I wouldn't mind a bit of healing. Okay, but that's not how it works. <laughs> that's not how it works. Jesus has all of you. Yeah, you can get the door open by miracles, and Jesus is a miracle worker, but he's not just a miracle worker. You can't just have that. You've got you've to have the whole deal. You've got to submit your life to him. You've got to let him deal with your sin, and you've got to come under his lordship in your life. And I think sometimes if we stay too much in that mind frame, we are going to end up cynical and unbelieving, which can happen, because Jesus doesn't please us. He doesn't answer all our prayers exactly as we want. He doesn't heal us every time. We don't get the performance we wanted from him, and so we quite quickly start mocking him and turn our back on him. Now, we may not do it as openly as Herod, but that's what he did. And I think we need to see this is a much bigger thing than just the superficial acts of Jesus, which I want to emphasize, I want to see more miracles and more healings. I am no way. I've spent 40 years looking for more of, of, and seen more sometimes than I did 40 years, you know, more of the charismatic, more of the supernatural. I am 100% committed to it. But it is not all about that. Faith in Jesus is not built on miracles, and it's not sustained by miracles and healings. That is not what we build our faith on. It's not what we sustain it on. Sometimes we get overexcited about stories of very remarkable things that happen, that's great, but that's not what we build our faith on because if we do that, when something unremarkable and disappointing happens, our faith could collapse again. So that's not how we build it. We build it on a personal relationship with Jesus, that he is the Son of God, our Savior. We build it on the fact we needed him to die for our sins. We were sinners, <laughs> lost, dead in our sins, and he made us alive. And he doesn't owe us anything, but he's given us everything, and it's all of grace. Amen? And we keep that in our hearts as central, which means we love him and we obey him. And yes, 
Our faith does often bring amazing breakthroughs, but they aren't the things that keep us going. They bless us and we want to see more of them, but our faith is sustained by him, our relationship with Jesus, and the fact, the truth of what he brings. Any attitude of sign-seeking strikes at the root of what real biblical faith is. The Bible's order of events is this. These signs will follow those who believe. That's the Bible order of events, not the other way around. Hallelujah. So that's what we see in Herod. And here Jesus is very clearly warning his own followers about this mixture, this compromising, this spiritual fascination and a bit of desire for signs, but actually a worldliness that's root, that, that, that in, in life and, and outlook. Each stage in church history throws up these dangers, but they often manifest differently. I'm not even going to get into over-exploring them today. But probably our yeast of Herod is different from 100 years or even 50 years ago. Uh, maybe ours is more about materialism or the cult of self or lax spiritual, uh, sexual morals and morality than it would have been. But it's in every age. There's always a need to be careful that we don't get into that mixture. Now, I want to finish with the third one, which is the disciples themselves. So I want to move on to their blindness, which is perhaps a little bit even nearer to home. Self-obsession, I've called it. There is an incredible dullness in the disciples. Have you ever noticed that? They seem hugely thick. But we've got to be careful (laughs) because as we point one figure, three are pointing back at us and we'll see that as we go on. In Mark 7 verse 18, Jesus says this to his disciples. Jesus said, are you so dull? That's a good one for a fridge magnet, isn't it? I've seen that fridge magnet. Jesus says, are you so dull? It might be good to have it on your fridge, remind you. might be better than many others. Because this is to the disciples. This isn't to the Pharisees. It's not to the Rodians. It's to the disciples. And here, he gets pretty irritated. Probably the most irritated, almost, or one of the most irritated that you see recorded with the disciples. It's worth looking at it again. Following the second incredible miracle of provision where Jesus has fed 4,000 people with seven loaves. He gets in a boat and he starts, takes the disciples on the first of two boat trips which have been described to us. It might be worth saying, in passing, the disciples seem to show, have learned nothing from the feeding of the 5,000. They show the same paucity of faith well, you know, when Jesus says, I'm oh, having compassion, they've got a long way to go, it's, uh, you know, give them some food sort of thing. They say, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How about Jesus? He did it a few weeks ago. No, they don't seem to think of that. So they, they've already not done well. Now they come, get out the boat, and remember they're all there, and they have, there is this uh, uh, episode with the, with the Pharisees which seems not to be really noticed by the disciples. I don't know they, where they were. I think they were there. But they don't seem to sort of take much notice of that. That's just Jesus and the, and the Pharisees having a bit of a set to again. You can see that as by what goes on. So they now get on to the second boat trip. And when they get on this second boat trip, they realize they haven't got enough food with them. They have only got one loaf. Now, I think these loaves were probably quite small. 
with, there are probably 12 or 13 people. Must, let's assume there's 13 people, Jesus and the 12 disciples, in the boat. Now, you might just about get a bit of a snack out of one of our big sliced jumbo loaves, but I think these were a lot smaller. I mean, when, when Jesus wanted to feed the 5,000, there was a lad there with five loaves and two fish. So I'm not sure if they were more like little mini baps or something, or the sort of little rolls we had yesterday with that soup, which about that big. Marion said, oh, this soup in Marks and Spencer has two rolls with it. Really, Marion? What are they? <laughs> so I, I'm jolly glad I bought that extra packet of crisps. <laughs> it, it, it might have been those Marks and Spencer's rolls. I think that's what they had. So they had one like that between them. <laughs> and that is a crisis for them. Uh, uh, they're often quite distracted by food and its need at key times. You just read it. John 4 is a great one with the woman at the well. Again, who gave Jesus something to eat? Jesus said, I've got food to eat you've got no nothing of. What do you mean? Where did he get that from? Well, it's talking about his father. You read it for yourself. They're quite often obsessed with food, and they are here. Jesus isn't in the least interested with their lack of lunch. He is much more concerned about the dangers of the destructive attitudes of the Pharisees and the Herodians getting into his embryonic church and Jesus warns them of that but his warning in verse 16 goes completely over their heads did you notice that they discussed with one another the business of be careful Jesus says watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the horror of Herod they discussed this with one another and said it is because we have no bread how on earth did they get tackled well I have a theory how they got there which I will take you in on I think they said something like this. What is he on about? The yeast of the Pharisees and Herodians. You only get yeast in bread. All right, he must be on about bread then. Oh, this loaf is a leavened loaf with yeast in it. Jesus must want us to have unleavened bread. Someone should have thought of that. That's what holy people eat. That's what priests eat. We should have brought a stack of unleavened bread. Some idiot forgot. Well, it wasn't my fault. I don't know. Well, Judas, he has the money. Why didn't you buy it? So all of this, is, and Jesus is hearing all this going on. They are so literal, so down here. They are worried. They think the only thing Jesus could possibly be angry about is not enough lunch. That is the only thing that would bother him. This yeast thing must be, we've got the wrong sort of bread and we haven't got enough of it. We need the leaven, you know, we need something a bit holier. It's Jesus, Messiah, you know, shouldn't have leaven in it. And we should have loads of it. That seems to be what's going on. And Jesus is fully aware of their stupid argument and breaks in with what is pretty well one of his sternest warnings. And I do remind you, Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. He clearly expects his disciples, and this is quite challenging, he clearly expects his disciples to see with spiritual perception what he's saying. Just let that sink in. Because Jesus does not go, oh, sorry, lads, I was a bit obscure. It's a metaphor. Let me explain to you. Jesus doesn't go, he doesn't do that. He just goes, you idiots. He doesn't actually hit them. But he, now, now you, wait a minute. You think, whoa. Jesus, I don't feel you always spell everything out for me. Yeah, he's not going to. Think, really? Well, no, he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't do what the polite English approach. He doesn't say, look, sorry, I'd be a bit clearer. No, he doesn't do it. He expects them to have eyes to hear, see, ears to hear what he is saying to them. And actually, this rebuke 
echo is familiar. When you read it and you know your Bible a bit, you think, oh, I think I've seen something like this before. You bet you have. God says this to Israel several times. Let me give you quickly two examples. Jeremiah 5, 21, if you could pop it up. Hear this, you foolish and senseless people. This is to Israel, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Look at Ezekiel 12, 2. Son of man, you are living among a rebellious people. They have eyes to see but do not see, and ears to hear but do not hear, for they are a rebellious people. Now, we can be, and I'm talking with you, I'm not talking at you, I'm in there with you. I am part of Jesus' followers. I'm part of a church, I'm of Jesus' church. You know, we're here together. Now, we can look at those Old Testament verses that I've just put up, and we can think, well, that's what God said to the Old Testament. Oh, it's all pretty rough in the Old Testament. Oh, it's, it's a bit over the top both ways, really. God could get a bit cross. And we think, right, you know, my Jesus would never talk to me like that. Well, here's your Jesus in Mark 8, and he's talking quite, <laughs> quite, quite close to that, to be honest. It does seem like the same voice. it's, It's God speaking to his people and he's saying, I am so cross you don't hear. You don't see, you don't listen, you don't get what I'm talking about. And that is really what he's doing. He's saying, you're in danger of being as hard hearted and as blind as the Pharisees and Herodians. And so there must be a real challenge for all of us. Jesus says, I want you to listen to what I'm saying. He seems not to be merely worried about their lack of faith, about his ability to feed them, though that is not great. But he is more worried, I think, he's worried about both, I think, the whole mindset where they're in danger of missing completely who Jesus is and what he expects from his followers. So what, he, what he's bringing his followers into might be a better way of putting it. And that is really a concern. I think you can really pick that up in those verses 19 to 21. It's almost like a parent with a slightly slow child. Jesus is spelling out the two miracles. It's fascinating as you read it. And again, it's quite amusing. And he's getting them to remember what happened. What did I do when I fed the 5,000? How many loaves? Five. How many left over? 12 baskets full. That is quite remarkable, isn't it? Five, five thousand, twelve baskets. You know, you feel he's starting to say, get something out of this. Well, you say, yeah, why, why is that? Well, I think he's saying, first of all, I can provide for you. For goodness sake, stop worrying about your one loaf. I can provide. But I actually think he's doing something more as well. He's saying, this is a big moment in God's history. This is an epoch-making moment. It is. This is similar to what happened when the Red Sea separated, when manna came from heaven. And it is. It is a God miracle. I know we all see provision. We do, because we, the same Jesus is with us. But this is an epoch-making miracle. I'm not exaggerating. This is something remarkable. They are meant to get the guy in the boat is the same person who could split the Red Sea and feed Um, Three million with manna in the desert. This is epoch-making. This is something remarkable. And there should be a prophetic sensitivity, even, I would argue, to the numbers 12 and 7. I don't want to read a lot into it. It's just if you've got eyes to hear, eyes to see see and ears to hear, this is something big. Get it. Get it that the guy in the boat with you is something more than just a good teacher. Do you get it? 
And, and I mean, the disciples are just so funny. I love it. Jesus goes, right. I mean, you can see it's like a child. So, right, when I fed the 5,000, how many baskets fall over? Over. Um, you can almost see them. Um, 12. And when I fed the 4,000, how many baskets fall over? What, seven? Seven. And you can see the intensity in his eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and do you get it? Not really. <laughs> do you still not understand? <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't, you don't get, I could feed you 12 scruffs with one loaf if I wanted to. And second, do you not think that's quite remarkable? Do you not get who I am? Do you not get what I'm here to do? Now, actually, they don't, and this is the point. I've got to make it. I'm sorry, I've got to make it. It's the punch, really. Why don't they get it? Because they are obsessed with their own needs and their own minor inconveniences. The Pharisees rejected Jesus out of hand. They didn't have any time for him. Herodians cynically dismiss him as a mildly fascinating miracle worker and a bit of a religious fruitcake. But these guys are actually so busy with their own concerns that they don't appreciate who's right there alongside them and who he is and what he can do. And that is nearer to our dangers. That so, so the disciples' problem is that they, they, they just are thinking about what's bothering them. Now you can think, well, how could that be so? How could they experience feeding 5,000, feeding 4,000, let alone the other miracles, and still be so slow to think that Jesus could provide for them and all that sort of thing. Well, actually, I think it's quite easy to understand. I think very, very simply, this problem was their problem. Oh, dear. That ha- I mean, that's what I think. I, when I read this, I thought, yeah, this was their problem. It was their food crisis. I could, they really didn't care that much about 4,000 Gentiles going home hungry. 4,000 Gentiles. Jesus said, I have compassion on them. They could collapse on the way. Oh, really? Yeah, well, we haven't got any food. So 4,000 Gentiles going home. That's no problem. Or maybe a mixed company. But they've not got enough for lunch. Now, that's a problem. That is a serious problem. And it's harder, too, to believe that Jesus can meet your problem. It's a weird mix, isn't it? And I think it's like us, that you can be much more troubled about your minor problems than other big major problems of other people and that often it's a lot harder to believe God can meet your quite minor problem. It's funny, isn't it? But we are like that and we want to have our eyes raised like Jesus said, look, I'm here, I can meet your need and I'm a bit bigger than you're thinking about. And that's why they also seem very slow to remember what Jesus has done in the past. Again, that's near to home. We can get overwhelmed by the present little crisis. It may be a big crisis, but overwhelmed by the present crisis and forget what we've known of the power and goodness of God in the past. Is that not what happens? I think it happens to me. You're overwhelmed by the... And that seems to happen. And they also, finally, seem to be very distracted by the practical problem, or I would say, who let the side down? Who forgot the food? I think they are quite into that. I think they're arguing together. And I think that's why Jesus sort of gets across. I think, I think there's a little bit of performance-based relational thinking here. That, right, someone didn't get the catering right. Someone messed up with the loaves. And that is pretty well what's bugging them. 
That can be like us as well. Jesus says, I am not concerned about that. I'm concerned about you getting legalistic like the Pharisees. I'm concerned about you getting worldly and compromised like Herod. And I am very concerned that you are so locked into yourselves and your bodily needs that I can't get your eyes up above whether you've got enough loaves or not. Jesus said, that's what's worrying me. I am not bothered about who forgot. And I think we can be like that. I think we can be, I can, really can. I, I'm very prone, I think, to be worried about, oh, who didn't get that right? We didn't, you know, I'd like to see the, the equivalent to the catering done better. And Jesus says, I'm actually quite much more interested in the big stuff. Are people showing love? Is the legalism, is the unbelief, is the cynicism? Is there, where are we? Are, we, are you loving me and worshipping me? Are you seeing who I am, the Son of God? And are you, in a way, lost in wonder, love, and praise? I feel this is a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge for me, honestly. Encouraging concluding comments. Despite their dullness, Jesus does not give up on the disciples. He keeps working on them. In a way, he demonstrates that he knows their frailty, he, yet he also knows that in this little bunch there is the seeds of something big and wonderful, his church. And there are flickers of faith in them that turn up sometimes. There's flickers of love in them. There's flickers of change in them. And it really is about grace. It really isn't performance-based. It really isn't how the Pharisees work. And so Jesus is not writing them off for their failure. He's building their faith because Jesus knows if he can get their faith and belief right, ultimately the rest will be right. If he can get them to see who he is and believe what he can do, ultimately the rest will be okay. So that's where his battle is, his frustration. It's, it's to raise their eyes, to learn that God is amongst them. This is an epoch, the new covenant. This is everything's changing. I want you to be alert and to hear and believe what I say. Jesus really was who he said he was. He really did what he said he'd do. He died for our sins and rose again. He really did change everything. He's the saviour of the world. He really has been able to put treasure in clay pots like you and me. Our bodies become temples of the Holy Spirit. We can know God as our Abba Father. Our minds can be renewed. We can be changed from one degree of glory to another. Let's cast aside all blindness. Don't let any yeast spoil that. That is a wonderful lump of truth, isn't it? It's wonderful. Let's keep with it. Let's watch out that we don't lose it. Let's not fix our eyes on our own petty needs, on our own personal agendas. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together and worship him for a minute or two. I'm sorry I've ever, I haven't left long enough for the worship. I'd love to have done more. But you have to trust somehow that God's in what you say. Um, and, and I pray that God spoke to you. But I do want us to end with a song because I want us not to come forward this morning I want us to do business on our own, worshipping. I think if you feel any, any echo in anything I've said, I just want you to say, Lord, I want to throw out any yeast. I want to throw out any legalism, any pharisaical spirit, any Herodian compromise, any worldly, worldliness that's crept into me, where I look at it, I like the sparky sort of exciting bits, but I want, all the, I want all the world's values in other ways. I want you to throw out any self-seeking. Lord, it's all about me and my needs. No, it's not. It's all about him. And he can meet every need. 
But let's get it the right way round. These signs will follow those who believe. Lord, I believe in you. Let's worship him. If Mark, you could start us a song. When we're worshiping,